Good morning to all of you. I'd like to start this morning with a little story. Uh, it's about some young men in northwest Ohio a few years back. Uh, and um, some of you all have visited northern regions um, in northwest Ohio. And it's cold. Some are just colder than others. And it gets cold enough there that during the winter time, people do this crazy thing where they strap to their feet, and they go out on ponds, which somehow have become solid, and they skate. And so, one such year, at the end of December, a skating party broke out, and often it's such a, an event, um, people have a little fire at the edge of the pond, and, um, and then people skate, and when they get cold, they come back to the fire, and it was early in the season, as they say, and one of the boys got a little too far out on the ice, and he broke through. And one of the other youths that was standing at the fire went rushing across the ice, not even fearing for his life, and grabbed the boy by the collar and pulled him back across the ice. And um, afterwards, one of the uh, adults who was standing by... <clears throat> commended him for this and said, that was a very brave thing you did, Billy. And Billy said, well, you know, I really had to take my skates on. And it's a funny little story. But I think it speaks to motivation and, and ulterior motives and all the different things that, that we think about. And I do want to speak a little bit about motivation this morning. And Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. And I think the point there is not just that we are good at hiding our motive from other people, but that we're good at hiding them from ourselves. And we don't realize that our heart is as dark as it is. And we tend to cover up the things that aren't quite so good, and we say, Well, Yes, but there's a lot of good in there, and God can see the good, and, you know, my motivations aren't always the best, but the actions I'm doing are worthwhile. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And... It's easy to look back at ancient Israel and we say, well, yeah, they weren't so great. They really were screwed up. And they had a lot of sin in their lives and they weren't admitting it. So, of course, Isaiah would say that. But I think Isaiah's message comes clearly to us as well. Our motivations aren't always good. Our righteous deeds in God's sight aren't very good. Not because they're not worthwhile, but because... Without God, all of us are self-serving and focused on things that make us happy and make us look better. And so, kind of to finish the introduction here, I'd like to think on just a couple of verses from, from Psalm 139 that are very familiar. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you just turn my thoughts so far off. And that's a challenging thing. God knows not only the things that we're doing, but He knows the reasons why we're doing it. He sees the thoughts inside of us. 
And that's an important place to start. So as we kind of jump into this, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on motivation for bad things. Hopefully you all have never even thought of doing a bad thing in your life. I unfortunately have in the past. Um, and then spend a lot more time on motivations for good things. And then um, finally try to wrap it up and, and just think about ways in which we can apply it a little bit. So motivations for bad things. Um, first one that came to my mind was um, a desire for power. And um, I'm not going to read the whole section here, but in Acts chapter 8, it speaks of a man by the name of Simon the Sorcerer, um, or some people call him Simon Major. Um, and he clearly was somebody um, who had some ulterior motive for, for becoming a Christian. Um, in verse 9 it says that there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And so we don't know much about Simon, but we know that he was pretty important in the past because of magic tricks he could do. Um, and they impressed people. And people thought that he had power that came from God. And if you jump down just a little bit, in verses 14 through 17, Peter comes and he lays hands on some of the Christians in the church and they receive the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gifts of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lodge in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. And I'll just stop there. So Simon, I don't know that he really became a Christian. It's not totally clear to me, because he does later on say, well, pray for me, because clearly, if nothing else, he saw Peter's got power. He didn't have that power, and Peter wasn't going to give him the power. In fact, he somehow offended Peter through offering him money for this power. Um, but he'd not really abandoned his past. He'd not really abandoned his desire to, to have power and to control other people. And maybe this is something that um, is mostly a, a problem for secular people, not Christian people. And, um, but maybe you think Christians tend to want to be in control, and we want to have the ability to control a situation. And, and it takes power to do that, and it takes um, ability, and, and I think most of us have a little bit of that. Um, um, motivation whenever it comes to, to doing things. Um, a desire for fame. Um, John 12.43 says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Uh, you all remember um, those who were here. Um, Brother Wayne Schrock had shared a quote from T.S. Eliot, and I, I found a longer version of that quote, which I thought was even more interesting. He said, 
Um, C.S. Eliot said, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They do not mean to harm, but the harm does not interest them. Or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. I think that's a, a pretty weighty quote. It's not that people are out to, to hurt other people. It's that they're not as interested in other people as they are interested in their own self and their own way that they look. And I do think that this does happen in the church sometimes. People put themselves forward who would do better not seeking importance. Um, another bad desire. So we've, so far we've got um, motivations for bad things, a desire for power, a desire for fame. These probably aren't things most of us struggle with. A desire for money. Um, and um, I'm not going to read the passage, but Achan in Joshua chapter 7 um, took the money. He took um, a garment that was pretty fancy, and he buried them under his tent. And I've never figured this story out. I'm not sure when Achan thought he could show up wearing this garment and people would not notice it. It wasn't in the time when you could go to Walmart and pick up a Babylonian garment. Surely someone's going to say, where'd that come from? Um, suddenly he's got a whole bunch of money he didn't have before, and people are like, where did Aiken get that money? But regardless, he thought sometime down the road he's going to break this stuff out and he's going to impress everybody. Um, and he had to desire for something, even though God had told him not to take it. First um, Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And uh, other versions say um, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I'm, I'm not sure that all evil is necessarily related to, to desire for money, but certainly <clears throat> it's not the money itself. It's our pursuit of it that gets us into trouble. My sons were really into um, playing Monopoly for a while, and um, and um, they really could accumulate a lot of property and a lot of money as they went around the board. And um, I'm afraid Monopoly is not necessarily the best game for teaching people not to love money, because that's the whole point of the game, isn't it? It's acquisition, and hopefully to force the other people out of into bankruptcy so that you eventually win. Um, and so. Um, it's interesting to me that it was a it was a game that was created during the Depression. So when nobody had any money, they're playing this game where they're accumulating vast sums of money. Five hundred dollars back in the thirties would have been a huge amount of money. I mean, can you imagine how much gasoline you could buy then with five hundred dollars? Today you could buy what seven tanks of gas, maybe. Um, but money is an idol. Money is something that we can put up as a very important thing in our lives. And it's not necessarily even the money. It's the things that we think that money will buy. It's the stuff that we need in our lives in order just to make it go um, that we need money for. And somehow, Paul is saying we need to keep this in perspective. He didn't tell people to go out and burn all their um, denariuses, but he was saying this is not even in the top ten of important things in your life. Peer pressure is another thing that can kind of push us to do things that we shouldn't do. First Corinthians 
16.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company deceives good morals. And while it's true that this may be um, a real problem for young people, it's also true for older people. I've seen plenty of times where older people get drugged into buying stuff that they probably wouldn't want to buy because somebody else around them got something that is awfully nice or you know, a piece of technology maybe. Um, and there's a reason why some people just have to have the nicest lawn in their neighborhood or, you know, the nicest, you know, whatever it is. I'm not sure. Finally, our hearts just aren't good. You know, I read the, the verses earlier about our hearts being deceitful. And I, I thought of myself, and my mother would sometimes have me go out and, and weed in the garden. And, um, and I can tell you that when I was younger, I, I didn't do a very good job of it. Um, and you can say, well, why didn't you do a very good job? Uh, and maybe some of it because I just wanted to get done. But the bigger thing was I had the idea in my mind that if I did a bad job, she wouldn't ask me as often. Say, so, well, you know, that John Walton, he does a terrible job at weeding. We need to get one of the other children to weed. But I don't know that they were much better. Um, and so I, I just ended up having to do it. But my heart wasn't good. It needed to be redeemed. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And there's just a desperate need in our hearts for us to have what is right. Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Without a changed heart, we will tend to slip back into sinful desires of habits. So let's move on into our motivation for doing good things. So hopefully we're, we're not doing many bad things. Um, but a lot of times when we do good things, we struggle too. Um, and I would say, you know, it, it's better to do good things than... Um, for the wrong reasons than to do um, bad things for the wrong reasons. So if you have to decide and you just well, you just can't get beyond it, then just do some good things and just you know pray that God will change your heart. But, but my hope is that if we think about it, we can have a heart change. We can have a desire not only to do good things, but also um, to make sure our motivations are right. Um, and I would say as well that that if we have the wrong motivations in our life, it can lead to two problems. One of them is that we, we burn out. So we, we don't keep a desire to continue doing what's right. Um, and the second thing is that some of these can lead to discouragement over time. Um, so, first motivator doing what's right is a fear of hell, or, or I could say in a different way, a fear of judgment. And um, so just thinking about fear as a motivator, I, I sometimes have folks who come in to see me who, um, who have diabetes. And often when they first see me, their blood sugars are pretty elevated. They're 
you know, 300, 350, their A1C test at 10.2, which says that, that that's been going on for at least the last three or four months. And I talked to them, we're going to start some medicine, and, um, and they're just really scared at that point because their aunt had diabetes and had to have both of her legs amputated. And then she died of a heart attack, and, and they just don't want to go down that road. And four months later, I started a model medicine. Um, we checked their A1C test at 6.2, which says their average sugar now is 125. It's just perfect. They've lost 35 pounds. They just feel great. And unfortunately, I've seen enough folks that two years later, a lot of times, they've put back on 40 pounds. Their A1C test is 10.4. They're on two additional medications. And they just feel bad again. How many times after revival meetings have you gone home and you've just been excited? God is going to do some wonderful things. You've made some commitments. You've driven some stakes. You've said some things that you're just going to change in your life. And it's not too long often after that that we start to drift back into our old patterns. Fear is just not a very good long-term driver of us to do what's right. Even fear of hell. Hell is a terrible place. And, um, and yet, at the same time, sometimes it's the thing that keeps us in line. I had to ask myself, why is it that when I drive into Brooklyn, I drive 25 miles per hour? And I wish it was because I, I'm just committed to the safety of others. Um, but honestly, it's because I'm afraid of seeing flashing lights in my rearview mirror, and they, they patrol that area pretty heavily. But if I knew that I could escape punishment and I could drive 45 miles an hour through Brooklyn you know, and nobody would ever say anything, what would I do? And I would probably try to abide by the speed limit, except when I was running light, which is all the time. So, um, Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And another story came to my mind. The story of the, the man who gave his servants talents. And we know that he gave one, one talent, and another um, two talents and five talents. Is that right? Anyway, he gave, he gave some more and some less. And when he came back, the one who had one talent had not done anything. And he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you had scattered no seeds. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talents in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And the man said clearly, he's afraid of judgment, and that drove him to do nothing. And clearly that's not the answer at all. It may be okay to begin a Christian life with a fear of judgment, but I do think we need to, to mature beyond that point. We cannot just stay there long term. So, you know, 
if that's what starts you, that's a good thing, but I, I think we need to grow. Next thing is a desire for heaven. So, or we could say, um, serving for a reward. Heaven's a wonderful place. Jesus told his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, 1 to 3. And wanting to go to heaven is probably a good reason to serve God. Um, but I'm afraid that that's not really top of mind with most of us as we go through our days. Um, and serving for a reward can, can lead us to sort of burn out just a little bit. Um, one summer, my um, parents gave me um, 10 cents um, per wagon load for picking up rocks. And um, I just had a little red uh, radio flyer wagon that I, I, I don't know, that I always filled completely full when it was uh, um, time to take it and dump it. But I, I did collect a lot of rocks that summer, and Ten cents just seems to get smaller and smaller as the day gets hotter and hotter. And you just really think, wow, this, this reward is just not all it's cracked up to be. And I did not grow up in a depression, but ten cents really wasn't actually as much money back then as, um, as maybe some of you all think it was. I couldn't have bought a gallon of gas. Um, I think gas was probably $1.20 a gallon when I was a boy. So take that for what it's worth. I think I could have bought an onion for that. The reward. At the same time, it's important. Jesus does say many times that there is a reward for service. He brings it up. If that's something that's important to you, it's fine to think about that. Um, so many times through Scripture, we hear that. Another not so good reason um, that we sometimes do good things um, is to impress other people. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 4, um, actually starting in verse 36, so, and then going um, through 5.11. So this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, um, but I'm beginning in the previous chapter because I think it sets the, the stage for this story. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, so Barnabas impressed some people, didn't he? He, he had some, some land. Uh, we don't know how much, but, but he sold it. And when he sold it, he gave the money to the church. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold the possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why hath the Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. And the young men arose 
wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried the husband are at the door, and they shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. So some people say that they would like to die really close to their spouse, like, you know, within a few hours. But I don't think this is that kind of a story. I don't think anybody feels like there's like a heart of romance here. This is a story of some people who we could say maybe they were driven by um, a desire for money, but they were also driven by a desire to impress other people in the church. Their dishonesty was driven by these desires, a desire for money, a desire to impress others. Um, and so what is the thing that counters this? Um, Jesus said that the, that the counter to this is secrecy. Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4 says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is, hand is doing, but your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The idea is that to the best of our ability, we limit who sees us giving to others. And this is counter to the Pharisees who wanted to be seen for their large giving, their philanthropy, and their ornate prayers. And maybe you've all seen a picture of someone who is a wealthy donor who prints out this huge um, check that, um, and then has a picture taken in front of a, like a hospital or something like that. You're given a million dollars or... 2500 or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Um, does Jesus say that's wrong? Well, he doesn't. He, he doesn't say, you know, to the organizations that are involved, you need to give that money back because this person's giving with the wrong motivation. But what he does say is that this person has their reward. Whatever people think of them, if it's good, if it's bad, if they think, wow, that, that person is just trying to get, you know, impress other people. I don't, I'm not impressed at all. It doesn't matter. Their reward is the fact that people know what they've done. Uh, if you all have ever read Freddy the Pig book, uh, there's a character that comes back in several of them um, named Minx the Cat. And Minx the Cat is constantly sharing amazing stories that um, she has um, traveled the globe and done all sorts of amazing things. And you know what? None of the animals are actually impressed by her stories. Um, she, um, she just aggravates them because whatever they, whatever they talk about, she can one-up it. But regardless, even if you impress people with your amazing stories and things like that, that's not, um, that's not what we should be doing. And the goal is to be doing things in secrecy. When I'm in an exam room with patients, in a sense, that's a secret place. Um, if the patients want to share how I treated them or something like that afterwards, they can do so. 
But the important thing is that God can see what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, and that the patients feel that as well. And so there's a fine line here, but the next thing that I would like to think about is not necessarily impressing others, but, but pleasing others. And I think we can sometimes get almost addicted to making other people happy. And, and then maybe this, if I'm honest, is one of the things that I struggle with the most. You know, as I stand up here this morning and I talk about motivation, I'm also motivated by thinking about what you all think about me, about the way that I'm sharing this morning, about whether my thoughts come out in some sort of way that organized or interesting or whatever. And that's not what I should be doing. It's important. And what is it that separates what I'm doing from giving a speech to the United Nations? I'd probably be more tense there. But it's that I'm trying to, to think about God's Word and, and share it with you all. And, and so it's not necessarily bad to think about what will make other people happy when we're doing things. In fact, we probably should. We probably should do it more. The song Wider says, Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And the idea is that Jesus is first. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that sometimes if we do these things and they just don't turn out, it can lead to depression. And it, the problem is if we do our best, and we're trying to make other people happy, they're not always going to be happy. And you say, well, that's probably okay. But if you're living for that drug, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm living for the acclaim of other people and for, and for them to think well of me and to make them happy, and they're not happy, you can get very discouraged. John 12, 42 and 43 says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authority, believed in him, that is, Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And when we want to please others too much, it can lead us into two dangerous situations. One is that we do things that aren't pleasing to God because we're trying to please humans. Okay? And I, I think, you know, there's that one tension. Um, but on the other side, it can lead us to be depressed because we can't truly make everybody happy. You know, I'll know the story about Esau's fable about the man and his son and the donkey and about how um, the man started off riding a donkey, I think, and then the son rode the donkey and then... Um, and then they ended up carrying the donkey, and I, I forget what all happened. But anyway, nobody was happy, not even the donkey at the end of the story. Um, and I, I was, um, there's a passage in Galatians 2 that talks, um, Paul talks about maybe this a little bit. Um, and he says, but when Jesus, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Stephen before them all, 
If you as a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So this is a conflict. Peter, we know that um, that after he met with Cornelius, he had um, he changed. He he became more willing to to spend time with Gentiles. He maybe ate things that weren't okay under the Jewish law. And then he came to Antioch, and he was still behaving that way. And then some of these people showed up. They were they called Judaizers, and they were people who felt very strongly that everyone who became a Christian should also obey the law. Men should be circumcised. All the people should obey the um, the um, the kosher laws and, and eat appropriately and avoid unclean things and so on. And Peter changed. These other people showed up and Peter changed. And Paul said that he withstood Peter to his face. He said, look, Peter, you're not behaving right. You were living in this way because God had given you a message and now you've changed and you're living differently because you're afraid of what these other people are going to think about you and you want to please them. And Paul, in a sense, here is... Um, living for an audience of one. And that's why he's able to withstand these people. He was, he was probably as much as anybody at one time anyway, influenced by the Pharisees and influenced by the, the desire to be perfect. And yet, when he saw something different, um, I think he was probably not the, um, the easiest person to get along with. Sometimes we do good things out of a desire to impress God. And I don't know if you all think you can impress God. I, I think that, um, that it's a lot easier to please God than it is to impress God. And maybe you all have impressed God at some point. But um, Galatians 1 says, For now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's all God wants from us. He wants us. And if we have given it to Him in faith, He is pleased. And that's enough. You don't have to impress God. Um, I remember as a boy um, when I learned to play checkers, which some of you all play chess, so you're way beyond that kind of skill level. But I, I thought I was pretty good. I could beat some of the other boys my age, and I challenged my mother to a game of checkers. And my mother is not the sort of person who lets her children beat her. She just has always thought that she learned that uh, by... Uh, by facing a master. And so I lost three or four games in a row, and I was frustrated. I thought I was going to impress my mother with my ability to, um, um, to, um, to be her, and she just, she just lacked me. And so, um, at the same time, there were a lot of things that I could do that would please my mother. 2 Corinthians 5 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. And that should be our desire to please God in our lives. Um, 
Another reason why we sometimes do good things is because of duty. So Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. So this is man's law. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether they be good or evil. And King James Version says that's the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. If we have a strong sense of duty, we can probably do a lot of, um, a lot of good things. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there's a different spirit that comes through when we're just sort of grinding through stuff because we have to. Um, and maybe we're just a little bit like you are in the, in the Winnie the Pooh stories. And, you know, you are just never as happy about anything. And you just get through things. And, um, you know, but I'm afraid that that can lead for us, us to a, a situation where we're sort of burned out. Because we've been doing what we were supposed to all the time. And, and we're just never really driven by anything deeper. Um, the final one that I'd like to come to is probably the best one. This is love of Jesus. So, John 14, 15 through 24, I'd like to read. And so, as I say, you know, if you are driven by some of these other ones and you think about them sometimes, that's okay. Uh, but I pray that each one of us would, would develop a love for Jesus, a desire to make him happy because we love him. So John 14, um, I'm going to read 15 through 24 here. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but he know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. In a little while, and the world sees me no more. But ye see me, ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. But that it may ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved in my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not as period, how, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my things, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. And I'll stop there. So one of the last things that Jesus talked about before he went to the cross was love. What does it mean that we love Jesus? What does it drive us to do? Um, only a few weeks ago, we drove by um, Kedron, which we do periodically, um, and they had a sign out there, um, How to Love Your Mother. I think this was around Mother's Day, so it makes sense that I think that's the title of the message. And we didn't go. We came here, actually. Um, and so we don't know what actually they said. But my guess is that they said that the way you show your love for mother is not necessarily just with flowers on Mother's Day and to call her periodically. Those are, those are fine things to do. But, but if you do things that you know that she would be happy with. And in the same way, the way that we show Jesus that we love him is by doing things that we know he wants us to do. 
Genesis 29:26. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. We know he served 14 years in all, but it seems but a few days because of his love for her. How long is your life going to be? I don't know. I don't know how long my life is going to be. I would pray that at the end of our life we could say, Jesus, I served you all my life and it seemed but a short time because I loved you so much that serving you was not a burden. It was a blessing. And so we come to the end. Audience of one. How is it that we start living for an audience of one? Loving one person over all. There are many people watching us, and we know it. And we, and the people who are closer to us seem more real sometimes than that one who's most important. Colossians three twenty three says, "Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ." And there's this tension in my life and probably in yours sometimes too, how to make Jesus happy and yet at the same time to please the people around you. And I don't know always how that happens, but what I do know to circle around is that it begins with an analysis of our heart. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24, we read the first couple verses of that that psalm at the beginning is to search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. About a week and a half ago, we had a 37-year-old man who came into our office, had started having indigestion the night before, wasn't feeling the best. His mother, who was a nurse, had told him he should go to the ER and he didn't listen to her because He's 37. And um, we ran an EKG, and it was very clear from that EKG that he was having a pretty significant myocardial infarction or heart attack. And so we did the things we could do there. We called EMS, and we sent him up to Lindsberg, and he got a heart catheterization that afternoon. And they got a couple cents put in. He was young. And yet the problem here was that he didn't know his heart. So I would pray this morning, as we think about it, that we would open our hearts up to God and tell Him to analyze it. Just as our children are taking achievements that's not so long ago, that we would look at the results of those and see the areas in which we need to grow, where our motivations haven't been right, and that we would learn to love Jesus more than all.